0: Ooh. Welcome to Irish Passport uh, Let's do it Welcome to the Irish Passport
1: I'm Tim McInerney
0: I'm Naomi O'Leary
1: We're friends Can okay, welcome, to Naomi?
0: Ano Fat Tim This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics uh-huh. I'm recording
1: One One Two Two Three, three. Okay Hello. Hi, everybody. Hello, and welcome back to the Irish Passport podcast, where today we're going to be discussing the latest chapter in the Brexit saga. Something that has been affecting traders and consumers for some time now, and which looks only set to get worse, and that is food shortages, food missing from the shelves.
0: Yeah, but before we get into that, we've got a little announcement to make.
1: Yes, after all this time in lockdown, we are starting to do some normal things again, uh, little by little, and for our part, that means that we are coming back to Ireland to do a live show in September, on the 25th of September.
0: Yeah, we are really happy to announce that we will be appearing live as part of the Hillsborough Castle 2021 Centenary Talks Programme, where Tim and I will be speaking on the topic of place and power. So how place names, landscape and architecture contain secret histories that are hidden within plain sight.
1: Yeah, it's going to be loads of fun to discuss. It's going to take place at Hillsborough Castle, that's in County Down, and uh, it will be on at 7.45pm on the 25th of September, like I said. You can get your tickets now. They're £12 sterling and you can buy them online. So we'll put a link to the website in the show notes if you're interested in coming and seeing us.
0: We would absolutely love to see you there.
1: Absolutely, yes, indeed. But anyway, let's get back to the show.
0: Right, so disruption to supply chains was, of course, something that was warned about right since the beginning of the EU referendum campaign. Um, Mm. So this is the possibility that Brexit could severely disrupt Uh, established trade routes and have a knock-on effect on the smooth movement of resources in and out of the UK. It's also an issue that goes right to the heart of the Northern Ireland protocol which is still a matter of contention for some loyalist activists and unionists who fear that it's putting a wedge between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK.
1: Yeah right and there's a lot going on here there are the effects of Brexit of course but there's also all sorts of other things all sorts of pre-existing issues not to mention the unexpected fallouts of of the pandemic. And not for the first time, it's been difficult to sort misinformation from what's really going on in the situation. But luckily, I have Naomi O'Leary, journalist (laughs) extraordinaire, right here to set it all straight for me and for us listeners and tell us how Ireland fits into this whole jigsaw right now. Okay, so the first thing that we need to talk about are these growing worries about increasing shortages uh, in the UK of, of different supplies. For some weeks now, if not months, there have been just loads and loads of headlines, you know, popping up about empty shelves in supermarkets, with food supplies in particular not arriving at their destinations. Now, it's important to note here that this mainly appears to be happening, for the time being at least, just in Britain. As we'll discuss in a little while, the post-Brexit protocol means that Northern Ireland has access to alternative trade routes, so there there are ways around this in Northern Ireland. But in England, Scotland and Wales, things are definitely ramping up i have a short list here of some of the shortages that have been reported uh, in recent times so chicken the fast food chain nando's for instance had to close 45 restaurants because it didn't have enough supplies of chicken and even a giant like mcdonald's has suffered with this mcdonald's has no milkshakes on its menu uh, in, in a lot of stores and some of its stores lack bottled drinks as well i also heard that they're running out of bags of paper bags Um, Greggs, which is another British fast foods chain, Uh, Costa, which is a coffee chain, KFC, another, another chicken fast food, Iceland, frozen food, Subway, of course the sandwiches, they're all running out of supplies and Subway actually explicitly says that that's down to Brexit. The head of the co-op supermarket group says that they are seeing the worst food shortages that they have ever seen. Warnings have been coming out that shortages might get worse and worse at Christmas when of course there'll be a, a buying spree going on and there's going to be a lot more pressure on supply chains than there would be in normal times. The City Pub Group has reported that they've run out of Prosecco. And there's been a shortage of some drinks in the Green King pubs in Scotland. And Novikov Restaurant said it couldn't find Wagyu beef. So that's quite a lot, Naomi. That is quite a lot of food shortages that are just coming hard and fast here.
0: Right, little tiny violin for the missing Wagyu beef there. But um, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it is, um, yeah, it's quite striking when you lay it all out there. And there's also Other sorts of shortages, particularly of labour, in areas Mm. like healthcare and construction.
1: Right, okay, so let's look at some of the practical reasons for these shortages. So, some newspaper headlines have been immediately blaming Brexit. Some newspapers are saying, no, this has nothing to do with Brexit. There's lots of opinion pieces being written on this. And, like we saw from that roundup there, some of these uh, businesses are blaming Brexit explicitly, but some aren't. So what's actually going on on the ground that is preventing food in particular from from reaching the UK right now?
0: Yeah, so I had a conversation with a truck driver who drives from Ireland and Northern Ireland, goes through... Britain to the continent on that route and has been doing that for years. His name's John Fisher. And Mm. I speak to him every now and again, just to check in on how supply routes are going. And he told me a little bit about it. I'm also grateful for the insights of Tomas Orninski, who is a truck driver and also a blogger uh, who's based in Scotland. So essentially, the picture that you get is that this is something multifactorial. So there's a number of different factors feeding into it. Primarily, Mm. what's going on here is a very, very big shortage of drivers um so pay for these jobs these trucking jobs was very low and it relied on a constant supply of basically cheap new young people and and everything's changed for them. So the kind of young people who would once have taken up these jobs from parts of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, they now have to jump through hurdles to move to the UK and get the right to work. So, you know, they're going to other countries instead. Um, There's also other issues like bad conditions, uh, drivers complain of being put under intense pressure, being surveilled by their bosses when they're driving, and just like general bad treatment and a lack of respect. Um, There's also a number of structural issues. All of these checks and so on have been introduced on goods coming from the UK into the EU, and there's been various changes to rules, and it's essentially no longer part of the seamless single market. That means that there are fewer EU trucks going into the UK, so that's just reduced the number of trucks actually Bring stuff about Mm. for a number of reasons. Complications also cost, like lots of companies that are based on the continent have just simply cut Britain out of their service area. Um, Also, COVID had a role. So COVID disrupted trade generally, disrupted the workforce and disruptive travel. It also caused a lot of people who were EU citizens to return home from Britain en masse. Um, However, it's really worth noting that other countries in Europe, whether it's Ireland, whether it's France, whether it's the Netherlands, they do not have the supply problems that Britain is having. So there aren't food shortages or empty shelves in other places, it's just Britain, which points to this being, although there are, of course, other problems, it's brexit which has sort of catalysed it all together.
1: Right, yeah, that's a, that's a kind of glaring elephant in the room here when <laughs> when trying to move away from brexit as a, as a factor in this. I presume that these issues with low-paid transitory truck drivers is similar in lots of other countries as well. But even in Ireland right we haven't been seeing these supply problems or at least nowhere near at the scale of what we're seeing in Britain
0: it's just a british phenomenon yeah it's there's not this yeah. isn't going on in Ireland yeah
1: i mean there were there were i remember back in january there were some supply problems with uk suppliers though <laughs> as in like uk suppliers couldn't get their supplies out of britain into ireland i remember marks and spencers had some empty shelves uh, in ireland back in january but not only are we not seeing anything like the current shortages in ireland but Northern Ireland, too, has not been seeing these same kind of empty shelves.
0: So both Nando's and McDonald's in Northern Ireland put out statements to say that their restaurants in the north are not affected and they're not infected in the Republic because that's all in a group now. It's an all-island supply chain now, part Mm. of the single market. So it is separate to what is going on in Britain. Um, You mentioned some issues way back at the beginning of the year in January with British supermarkets that were supplying shops on the island of Ireland. So... If you were running a supermarket chain and you had shops on the island of Ireland and you were supplying them basically as like offshoots of the British market, so the same food, the same stuff, it's just a truck traveling slightly longer, that mm. was no longer feasible. So supermarkets had to stop doing that because it wasn't anymore possible to just seamlessly continue on with a truck and bring the same stuff over to the island of Ireland. You need to bring it in By the single market so you need to slightly adjust where you're getting your products from it doesn't mean there's going to be long-term shortages it just means that your shops are not just an offshoot of the british market anymore they're just supplied through a slightly different route i see. the Mm -hmm. right so shops in in on the island of ireland they can buy from the whole rest of the single market so we're just not seeing the same structural problems with the supply chains that we're seeing in britain
1: okay right now another question that i have is why now you know the brexit deal came into force back at the beginning of 2020 so why is it only now that supplies are suddenly disappearing from shelves and it seems like it's all happening at once?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I remember when we were building up to this, there was always this sense of this sort of deadline, you know, this sort of zero hour, and it might like mm. chaos might break out immediately, like on the stroke of midnight or something like that. And it was a big sort of non event from That point of view, like things just kind of continued quite normally. There wasn't that much disruption. And I think you can understand this as there was basically a massive cushion that was built up in Britain by the huge stockpiling that we saw going on in the months ahead of January 2021. So you just had, there were no free spaces in warehouses. Everything was just packed to the rafters with stuff because businesses were anticipating difficulties in getting stuff they were they're anticipating disruption and they made up for that by just getting in loads of stuff before the deadline that sort of backlog of supply that's been worked through now so we're now seeing these problems beginning to manifest in addition you know at the beginning there was there was understanding about bringing in stuff like paperwork and new rules like they were lenient with people they gave people the chance to kind of get it right and not everything came into force like bang on day one, particularly when it comes to stuff coming into the UK. And then, of course, you have these other aspects, like particularly COVID, which is sort of worsening things.
1: Okay, right. So one can only imagine that small businesses and medium businesses must be absolutely terrified. Like if McDonald's can't handle its supply chains right now, you know, what hope does a small business have? So, you know, something's got to be done, I imagine, pretty sharpish. What is the Westminster government doing to tackle this they seem it seems to me that they've kind of walled themselves into a corner on this one like what happens now
0: yeah it's really tricky isn't it i mean there's a number of like different, very urgent policy questions facing the British government at the moment and food shortages are certainly not welcome coming on top of COVID and everything else that's happening. Um, What we do know is that things might get worse. So I was mentioning Mm -hmm. that there was a little bit of leniency at the beginning. So a major part of this is that the UK never actually implemented checks on incoming goods. So it just waved people through. The paperwork has only actually been required so far on goods leaving Britain for the single market the full requirement for declarations and particularly on for health checks on food, animal and plant products, they're only due to come in um, the first bunch on October the 1st and the second bunch in January 2022. And trade groups are warning loudly that this is going to make things worse and this is going to cause a lot of disruption. Long term, you'd have to predict that costs will have to go up to persuade more people to become delivery drivers and fill that shortage. Like. For example, at the moment, Tesco is offering drivers a £1,000 bonus if they sign up to work for them. But this sort of gimmick isn't really sustainable, like overall conditions have to improve um, now mm-hmm. that there isn't that constant supply of you know cheaper labor coming in. And ultimately, that is going to mean increased prices in supermarkets for consumers. I have to say, like from my experience living in the UK, was that prices on various consumer projects did strike me as kind of incredibly maybe unsustainably low in i remember chicken Mm. as particularly amazingly cheap so the financial times has written that this was artificial you know things were actually being kept artificially cheap by some of this um these arrangements supply chains will gradually readjust to this new reality and businesses will purchase things from different places or buy different things but the transition can be messy And, you know, this is something that was pretty much inevitable with Brexit.
1: Right. That's that's interesting about price hikes that the former supply chains were allowing a kind of very buoyant, very dynamic system to keep prices strangely low so Mm -hmm. that price hikes may not necessarily mean that Brexit is is causing inflation or something, or it would just mean that the prices are coming into line with what it actually costs uh, to run this, which, which is interesting. Yeah,
0: it's not. Yeah, it's not as jammy for consumers as in the past, basically.
1: Great, great news. <laughs> great news for the average shopper there. Um, all right. Um, well, actually, uh, okay, news for the truck drivers who are, hopefully will get a bit, little bit better pay packets at the end of the week. I want to zoom in on uh, Northern Ireland for a moment. So, as part of Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, an arrangement known as the Protocol was implemented in Northern Ireland. So, just to jog your memory, this Protocol was implemented to avoid a hard border reappearing between Northern Ireland and the Republic after Brexit, and everyone, practically everyone involved, agreed that a hard border uh, on the island of Ireland would have been disastrous. So, this Protocol, which avoids that, means that checks between goods travelling between Britain and Northern Ireland happen in Britain, on the island of Britain, before those goods cross the Irish Sea at all and by the time the goods arrive in Northern Ireland they will already be certified for use in the EU and therefore the border in Ireland can remain completely open. That means in turn that trade routes between Northern Ireland and the Republic are still open and as smooth as they ever were, there aren't any customs checks and goods can move back and forth across the island unimpeded, north to south, south to north. Now. As these various supply problems have been hitting Britain, that north-south trade across the Irish border has actually been exploding. Uh, according to the Irish Times, imports to the Republic from Northern Ireland were up 77%, while wow. exports from the Republic to Northern Ireland have risen by 43%. Both of those figures are, are just incredible. Um, and yeah. also it really shows me like how much scope there was for trade there that mm. wasn't being used before which is which kind of surprises me actually. So some politicians like the SDLP's Matthew O'Toole they've highlighted this explosion of north-south trade as just a proof basically of the tangible benefits of the protocol and highlighting that the protocol is an opportunity for Northern Ireland that it could use to take advantage of its unique position uh, with special access to both UK and EU markets. I mean, that's not particularly how, what it was designed to do, uh, but it does this as a, as a byproduct. You know, it can be it can be used uh, very much to Northern Ireland's advantage, or so. Right. Uh, so these advocates yeah. would say. Yeah.
0: Well, basically, the way the way it went down was that you know, Northern Ireland does have a special arrangement that, you know, the EU wouldn't have been prepared to grant to anyone, but Northern Ireland made a special exemption Mm. because it's really, really small. And there were other considerations, like trying not to screw it up, basically, (laughs) and trying (laughs) to make things all right there for the people because everyone wanted to protect the peace process and stuff like that. So they did get a sort of a like an extra special offer that wouldn't have been given to others.
1: Right, a pretty sweet deal. That if it if it had mm-hmm. been packaged in a different way, you know, uh, you know, people might have been jealous of it. And, you know, like why don't we get one of these? Everyone wants a protocol. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Waiter, there's a protocol in my soup.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have a, I'll have an extra protocol on my uh, subway sandwich. Uh, okay. <laughs> listen. <laughs> You would think then, you would think that everyone is sighing with relief that the protocol seems to have prevented these empty shelves uh, happening in Northern Ireland. However, as we have mentioned of course before, some people don't see it like that at all. Some people are very very much against the protocol, even existing, in particular, loyalist groups and more hardline unionists who have opposed the protocol since the very beginning. This is because some of them see it as distancing Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK, And others might even be unhappy about this increased economic involvement between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And I think it's worth noting here, Naomi, this is something that isn't often dragged up, but among hardline loyalist groups back in 2016 during the referendum, it definitely seemed like one of the attractions of Brexit was precisely that it would re-establish a distance between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and even though very few people admitted it, there was a strong kind of underlying subtext that some people would welcome the reintroduction of a hard border on the island to keep Northern Ireland as separate as possible, almost kind of like undoing the kind of integration that had been achieved uh, through the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's a very, that's something that would be very difficult to say out loud, I think.
0: Yeah, it was unspoken. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah like, it was very much there in the air. So... If we consider that that was a secret desire, <laughs> you know, if we consider that <laughs> a hard border, that some people might have been hoping for that or something close to that, if we consider that those same people have ended up with even more cross-border interaction in Ireland and instead seeing a barrier, what they can perceive as a trade barrier, being erected between Northern Ireland and the UK... You know, that must drive them absolutely up the wall, those people who were trying to keep Northern Ireland separate. There were lots of reports of Loyalist protests earlier on this year. They were a lot more complicated than Brexit and a lot more complicated than the protocol, as we mentioned in our episodes. And there were fears that this would boil over during the summer marching season. But summer is kind of over now, Naomi, and it's this anti-protocol um, movement, it seems to have fizzled out a bit. I mean it's hard to keep shouting about the damage the protocol is doing when it seems to have single-handedly kept food on the shelves, despite the rest of the UK not having that. Uh, would I be right in saying that?
0: I mean, certainly my impression is that the heat has gone out of it, at least for now. Mm. Um, The mass protests that some loyalists warned about just didn't manifest. And the marching season passed relatively peacefully. Um, On the EU side, I mean, the EU got bored of this issue long, long ago and moved on. Um, Mm. However, um, although it seems like that now, some tests are coming down the line for this. So I mentioned that some rules had been suspended for the movement of goods into Britain. That's also the case for some aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol. It hasn't been fully implemented. And partly there were sort of waivers and grace periods to allow supermarkets time to source alternatives. And one famous example is the sausage thing. It's the movement of uncooked meat um, from Britain into Northern Ireland. That's just been continuing, even though it's technically not allowed into the single market, because uncooked meat is a very, very high risk good when it's coming from a place which doesn't follow the same safety rules. So this isn't supposed to continue past the end of September. and There's potential for drama there because Prime Minister Boris Johnson, you know, can't resist sausage puns and shouting about sausage bans or <laughs> sausage wars or whatever. For the EU, it's an absolute red line that they just can't make an exception there because the single market has to be protected. So the EU actually moved towards legal action on this issue earlier this year. Then everything got calm because everyone's trying not to make it like politically sensitive during the marching season. But it's a fight Mm. that could very well flare up again. However, you know, this is actually practically not that difficult to solve because Northern Ireland supermarkets can just source stuff in the same way the supermarkets in the Republic do. Like it's just a question of adjusting supply chains. And if this is done and it's not causing concrete problems... But the protocol is just something that's sort of upsetting to people, in theory, like as an idea, because it makes them feel distanced from Britain. You'd have to ask, like, is it a political issue that can endure? Because it was always a bit technical if it didn't affect people's lives, you know. As we said, like, there is no shortages in the Republic. The big test now will be Northern Ireland Assembly elections in May next year. So that will be when we will find out and in the build up to that, whether unionists find the protocol is an issue that still has political cut through. Like, is it still important for voters? Is it something that will galvanize them or turn them off? And there were some really, really, really interesting results out just today, actually, from a Lucid Talk poll. And it showed that the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, the once dominant voice of unionism, has dropped to be the fourth party in polls. Number four, incredibly. Yes. Um, Of course, they were in charge during the whole signing of the Brexit uh, protocol thing, and they supported Brexit unlike other unionists. Um, They've been Mm. overtaken by rival unionist parties, the UUP and the TUV, relatively a bit more moderate and a bit more hardline unionists. All those unionist parties are on respectively like 16% for the UUP 14% for the TUV, 13% for the DUP. Sorry, this is like an alphabet soup here. But then Sinn Féin Mm. is on 25%. So they're by far, by some healthy margin, the biggest party in polls, And that points towards having a Sinn Féin first minister, which we've talked about how that would have a really symbolic sort of meaning in, Mm. in Northern Ireland. Alliance, by the way, is neck and neck with DUP at, that, at this stage on 13% as well, the the non-aligned party, which doesn't consider itself either nationalist or unionist. Um. So yeah, really fascinating results. And we have to see with the competition between all those unionist parties, like a very fragmented vote clearly among unionists and what salience will the protocol have in that election I think that will be really important to keep an eye on.
1: Wow, that is that is something else. So, yeah, so that, that's Sinn Féin coming up to almost twice the percentage points there as the DUP, uh, 25 yeah. versus 13 right now. It, it is interesting to see as well this kind of almost even split now between the unionist parties, mm-hmm. split evenly into three. And you could almost kind of say into four if we include alliance as an option for unionist voters as well. Um, That is fascinating.
0: You've got this plethora of little parties because the SDLP, the other sort of nationalist party, I guess, but more moderate than Sinn Féin, is also on 13%. So there's like all of these parties on about 13% and then only Sinn Féin, like starkly ahead on 25%. It's really interesting. I mean, these these polls can obviously go up and down, but um, this makes for a fascinating election and It does show like the power sharing arrangement, which assumes two big blocks. It assumes a big unionist bloc versus a big nationalist bloc. Pretty ill fit for this diverse electorate, I would say.
1: Uh, Interesting. So that would be one to definitely keep our eye on. So also coming up very soon in the future, you mentioned that some post-Brexit rules for Britain uh, have been suspended once again uh, until October. If I understand right, that was partially to avoid the marching season. Is that right?
0: Kind of. Like, I don't know if it was actually said explicitly, um, uh-huh, they, okay. the UK asked for it to be suspended again. And they said that they would unilaterally suspend, suspend it. And then the EU was like, don't do that because that's bre- breaching our agreement. And then they came to the U- EU instead and said, we'd like to extend it. And the EU was like, OK, then," <laughs> because they just want to keep things quiet. It's true. They, they were very mindful of the of the marching season and they wanted not to keep ramping up tensions um, to coincide with that so they they made an agreement that they would do that and keep working together to implement the protocol there's very little trust on the eu side towards britain though in terms of like how much are they really implementing this protocol i mean they're they're doing these checks for the sake of protecting the single market and yet they're checks that they very much do not want to be doing you know the british side So, yeah, I mean, definitely keep your eye on that one.
1: Um, It also kind of introduces this another deadline, right? Another Mm. deadline hanging in the air. One of the kind of very predictable things at this stage that deadlines seem to engender is Westminster melodrama, where we see political parties like (laughs) pouncing on these deadlines or these deals as opportunity to build political capital and doing all these theatrics and performances in the House of Commons. But like never really coming up with actual solution, just like waiting for the next deadline. And something else that's become fairly predictable now for the ruling Tory party in Britain is to try and reframe every step of every process as some kind of nefarious plot by the EU. This is driven of course as well, by the right-wing media. Generally, newspapers like The Express you know seem to have this idea that Brexit is perfect, that it's going according <laughs> to plan. It's a triumph actually, but everything that goes wrong with it is some kind of result of those pesky kids in Brussels, you know throwing spanners in the works. So I suppose we can look forward to more Westminster Bubble. Uh, rhetoric um, drumming up arguments and counter arguments creating an internal press furore um, but really it's only themselves in the room and then we're back to square one
0: yeah there is the potential for that to strike at pretty much any time any time that um, particularly the Johnson government starts to think that it would be politically advantageous for them to you know rile up the base electorate against Brussels or whatever you know the old foe Uh, But yeah, definitely it's pretty one-sided. Like there is, on the EU side, there's no political benefit seen in like squaring up with the UK. Um, whereas for London, there is actually political benefit there mm. because, you know, the Boris Johnson government basically really wants to retrospectively justify the whole Brexit decision. So it seeks ways to make people think, God, you know, the EU is awful. Thank God we left. Or, you know, isn't it great mm. now that we've left the EU? Like they want they're, they're interested in in creating that sort of impression. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, this was kind of illustrated this week because the UK government announced that it wanted to reform its data protection laws to promote economic growth. And uh, I can explain this and break it down, but bear with me because it's a little bit technical. It was reported in some British newspapers as ripping up GDPR and getting rid of annoying internet cookies pop-ups, but that's not really actually oh, right. very accurate.
1: <laughs> okay, oh, well, right. Okay, the, those internet cookie pop-ups are annoying, and for anyone who doesn't, well, <laughs> anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about for our non-european listeners in particular gdpr is uh, that stands for the eu's general data protection regulation and basically it just allows individuals to have greater control over their personal data on the internet and i think it also simplifies some issues for um, businesses who operate across borders so one thing that you would notice if you're using the internet in the eu is that websites will ask you for permission to use data collection tools or cookies on practically every website you open, you do have this very annoying, I mean, it has to be said, pop-up, asking you to accept or reject these cookies or something similar. Though, it always does give me a very brief and satisfying moment of empowerment when I reject them.
0: Right, well, Tim, I have to correct you because those cookies are not actually required by GDPR. It's it's not GDPR that decided that we had to have internet Uh cookies permission requests. They actually predate GDPR, but GDPR just didn't repeal that existing requirement. Um, oh, so that's interesting. Yeah, the reporting that this is about getting rid of internet cookies is actually just quite disingenuous briefing by the UK government and reporting reflecting that among the British right wing press. Um, mm. But yes, GDPR in general is about giving the owner of personal data control over the use of that data to sum it up, not just on the mm-hmm. internet, but in all ways. So if you read the UK government announcement, um, here's what's going on. The analysis of data, right? is viewed as a potential area where businesses could make lots of money. So just to take an example of like massive data sets, like those that are collected in a healthcare system, you can do lots of interesting things with a big amount of data like that. Like you could predict people's life outcomes. You could train uh, artificial intelligence to diagnose people about potential health risks based on all of these Mm. examples that you have. You could also know who you could best market your products to, how much insurance you'd be best off charging people and so on it's very valuable stuff data and lots of businesses are interested in it for example it's basically google's main business model as main way of making money the uk wants to encourage growth and innovation in this area and if you kind of loosen the requirement that each individual has to give permission for their personal data to be used in such and such a way If you loosen that, it makes it much easier for businesses to do what they want with data. So it's Mm. announced a reform of its data protection laws to encourage this uh, innovation and growth, but without going into much detail. It also said that it wanted to sign data adequacy agreements with a number of countries, including the United States, Australia, South Korea, Singapore, and the Dubai International Finance Centre, and Colombia. Kind of a bit of a random bunch. But anyway, to explain what (laughs) a... Yeah, Colombia is the one that kind of strikes me as particularly random. But anyway, um, a data adequacy agreement, basically, what is that? It means that your government deems that the level of protection offered for personal data in another country is broadly equivalent to what you enjoy at home in your own country. And therefore, data can seamlessly be sent across borders. And this is very useful for businesses because it means, for example, you could be a business in the UK and you could have someone doing your payroll services over in Singapore. So handling people's names, addresses and bank details very seamlessly, that's just like one example. Mm. But this kind of data exchange happens in every facet of life that you can think of in this very digitized world. So there's like innumerable examples that you could come up with. Um, If you don't have one of these data adequacy agreements, then businesses have to sign special sort of permission agreements about the protection of data before that they can send it abroad. And it basically grants the people whose data it is the right to sue and stuff if, you know, their data ends up in the wrong hands and their privacy is breached.
1: Okay, so where does Ireland come into this? How Mm. how would it matter exactly to Ireland that the UK wants to sign these data agreements internationally?
0: Because in June, so just very recently, the EU, EU granted the UK a data adequacy agreement, allowing for data to continue to flow across borders post-Brexit between the EU and the UK. And this was really, really, really important for Ireland because there are so many cross-border businesses between the Republic and Northern Ireland in particular. Mm. That Uh, but also broadly between Ireland and Britain, that would be really disrupted without it and loaded with loads of costs. And it's also really important for cross-border services on the island of Ireland, for example, healthcare, like just to think of a random example, how do you send an ambulance to pick someone up to go and get heart surgery across the border if you can't share their postcode, for example? Just as an example. So there was actually this huge worry in the build-up to Brexit that a data adequacy agreement wouldn't be signed because um, there were lots of reasons to fear that it wouldn't and that this would cause all kinds of disruption. And the the European Commission's decision to actually grant one in June was really controversial because there's a lot of member states opposed to it and the European Parliament actually expressed concerns and so did the European Data Protection Board Why? In particular, they were worried that in the future, the UK could diverge from EU data protection standards, that it might not any longer have the level of protection as in the EU, and that particularly, you know, this would mean that data of EU citizens being sent into the UK suddenly wouldn't be as protected anymore. And they also flagged this big risk that the UK could sign agreements with other third countries internationally to share data with them, which would then potentially expose EU citizens' data in the UK to lower international standards as well. It's probably worth noting that UK standards of data protection, even when they were in the EU, were kind of a long-running concern among various EU member states because British intelligence services are kind of notorious for spying on data and they're also a member of the Five Eyes, which is an intelligence-sharing arrangement between Australia, Canada, New Zealand and the United States, so loads of non-EU countries. You know, just as an example, one overriding concern is that If the EUK has an agreement with the US about data sharing and the EU has one with the UK, then EU citizens' data can basically be looked at by the CIA. That's a kind of crude way of putting it. But there you go. Yeah. Whoa.
1: Um, Wow. Just the CIA uh, having a look at uh, your emails. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Can I take a moment and just share the shiver that went down my spine when you said the five eyes there? (laughs) At what point did we actually move into a young adult uh, dystopian novel? (laughs) (laughs) When did we cross that frontier? So this is awful and complicated to say the very least. What can they do about it? How on earth could they begin to approach this problem?
0: Yeah. So as soon as the UK government came out and said, well, we've got these big plans for data and we're going to sign all these international agreements, the European Commission responded very quickly and said, we are watching. We are watching very closely. And back in June, when we gave this data adequacy decision... Uh, you know, we gave this on the understanding that at any time we could revoke it. You know, we were very much aware of the risks of divergence and we can end this data adequacy decision immediately if we don't think that the UK's protections are sufficient. If something like that happened, suddenly we're back on the table. This very difficult uh, issue for Ireland Uh and Irish businesses you know, which could cause all kinds of havoc, particularly along the border. You could think about it as a kind of hard border for data.
1: Oh, my God. All right. A hard border for data. Um, <laughs> l- look at us now. How things how things have improved. Here we are. We, now we have a hard border for data. Great, great, great. Listen, going to try and be up, uh, upbeat about this. Mm-hmm. Naomi, is there anything else that we should have our eye on?
0: Well, I kind of wanted to share something that I just noticed this week, which was a statement that came out of the UK government. No one listening can have missed the momentous, shocking, appalling events in Afghanistan this week. And the UK is currently chair of the G7. It's like a group of rich countries, basically. And on Tuesday, as the current chair of the G7, its government called an extraordinary meeting remotely online to discuss Afghanistan. okay. And they put out a statement when they called this this meeting and it said Prime Minister Boris Johnson will call on G7 leaders to to continue to stand by the Afghan people and step up support for refugees and humanitarian aid when they meet this afternoon. And then there was a little quote by Boris Johnson in which he said quote, he would ask our international partners to match the UK's commitments to support those in need. So Basically, I had a quick read of this thing and, you know, it's this statement is about casting the UK as a global leader. You know, they're taking the initiative, they summon all the allies to this meeting and (laughs) sort of like calling it. The way they put it, it's like they're calling on all these laggards to like catch up with everything that they're doing. Clearly, this is a statement that's like intended for a domestic audience. It's about showing the UK in a position of global leadership to a domestic audience. Like it's about performing global Britain. So it seems to me Mm. that the UK is so focused on performing this idea of global Britain domestically, that it actually harms its prospects of real leadership internationally. (laughs) Because this kind of statement where you cast allies as not pulling their weight is alienating to allies, particularly when you're about to ask them for stuff. So, you know, the G7 are Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK and the US. Like, The U.S. are the ones facilitating any evacuations. Like, no evacuations could be done without their army securing Kabul airport. Like, the U.K. wasn't in a position to make demands, you know? And at this point when the statement came out, Canada had already announced that it was taking in more refugees than the UK. So it was a bit like, like who are you calling on, you know? Um, mm, that right, just to give context, right. like, the real purpose of this meeting was actually to ask Joe Biden to extend the presence of troops in Kabul airport past a deadline that had been agreed by the Taliban to give the everybody more chance to get more people out. Um, and Biden just said no, which was kind of seen in the UK and more broadly in Europe as kind of humiliating. But yeah, actually, the UK was in a position of, Of requesting. It was like a demandeur. It wasn't, you know, the one that was leading and saying, like, everyone has to catch up with it. Um, So basically, for me, um, maybe it's wrong to read too much into the statement. But for me, it kind of underlined the way in which the British government seems to be quite frivolous in how it uses this international posturing to cater to a domestic audience. It actually does squander quite a lot of the clout that it has internationally by using it up on this sort of in on these domestic concerns like it, the, the mm-hmm. domestic audience is prioritized so much ahead of how it needs to sort of communicate internationally that you know mm-hmm. it's international reputation really suffers and this was definitely shown up by the whole Kabul dog and cat situation which I don't know if I even want to get into this but
1: you'll need to uh, summarize it for us quickly I think because that's uh, a yeah. you can't just leave the listeners there with the Kabul dog and cat situation Naomi <laughs>
0: yeah okay so there was an ex-British soldier who'd founded an animal sanctuary in Kabul and he wanted to evacuate 200 dogs and cats from his sanctuary to bring them back to the UK and there, there's actually got a huge amount of domestic interest in Britain. And there was a lot of public campaigning to get these pets out. The defence minister, Ben Wallace, initially was like, you know, we can't prioritise animals ahead of human beings, but was sort of browbeaten into having to be like, you know, we'll do what we can kind of thing by this massive domestic uproar about it. The upshot of it was that Ben Wallace, the defence secretary of the chair nation of the G7, ended up tweeting out like a long thread to the world about evacuating dogs and cats on like the worst and one of the last days of the Kabul airport evacuations. Like, and this was within hours of like a suicide bomber going and killing dozens of people. And, you know, it just fundamentally looked actually unserious and absurd. And, Mm, mm. you know, it was reported in the UK press that the The reason that Ben Wallace had to do this U-turn was because of Boris Johnson, that Boris Johnson and his um, wife, Carrie, had intervened in favour of getting the dogs and cats and stuff out. So it just, to me, what it was all came from, it seemed to be from this inability by the UK government to kind of level with the public and just say, you know, we're not actually in charge here we don't actually have the power to do whatever you want we're not like all powerful we actually rely on the americans to get in and out of kabul airport and even they are struggling to hold on there they're not actually in control either uh, that much and we can't ask our allies to get out dogs and cats because we'll just look ridiculous and pretty bad because there's loads and loads of people who are going to be left behind and you know the taliban aren't executing pets Anyway, he actually was evacuated in the end. He got out with his dogs and cats, but he left his uh, Afghan staff behind, which is another story. By the way, Ireland comes out of that uh, particular story, far from covered in glory as well, which is something that we are going to explore in an upcoming episode where we'll look at the backstory to how Ireland got Irish citizens out of Kabul airport in Afghanistan and what it tells us about the history of Irish neutrality and defence capabilities or the lack of them.
1: Looking forward to that one. Wow, okay, well listen, this has been a lot to take in. Thanks so much, Naomi, for bringing us all up to speed on this. I feel like I've had 15 weeks of news condensed into the last 45 minutes, but I think it's time to wrap up. Listeners, before you go, just a reminder of our upcoming live show once again. It will take place at Hillsborough Castle in County Down. It's going to be on at 7.45pm on the 25th of September next. Tickets are £12 sterling and you can get them online. We will put a link in the show notes so you can get yours. So if any of you are out there, we'd love to see you there.
0: That would be amazing. We would love to see uh, listeners there. I'm sure it will be a great evening. I'm really looking forward to it. So in the meantime, salon for now.
1: And salon for me. Bye, everyone.